0: Let's talk about the six scariest words in the English language. Can I look at your phone? All right, look, I know it's a sermon, not a film, but, you know, let me have my fun. phones are our window on the world. They are the tool by which we choose to see or say almost anything we want. I wonder when I might start to make you uncomfortable. What if I could see the profiles and pictures that you've looked at on Facebook and Instagram? What if I could watch the last 10 videos that you watched when you were alone? or see the tweets that you've read and the people you follow? What if I could read the messages you've sent or listen in on some of your conversations? What if I had access to your internet history and could see everything you had done online? How far would I have to dig before I would hit something that you would be ashamed of? And what would be the worst thing? What would it mean to have that exposed? For many of us, this time has meant being stuck at home with nothing but our smartphone to keep us sane. When that's the case, how do we resist temptation? How do we protect our eyes, our ears, and our minds from things that we know we shouldn't be doing? And what is the cost if we don't? What is the cost of giving in to temptation? In our passage today, David is in a similar situation. After years of successful campaigning, he has decided to stay home this summer and is restless in his palace. One evening he makes his way to the roof when his eye is caught by something tempting and Leonard Cohen starts to play. Bathsheba is on her roof too. Now this temptation is not new for David. As Israel's second ever king and God's anointed, we might hope that he would be following the rules to the letter. Instead, David has been accruing wives. God laid out specific rules, one king, one wife. As Deuteronomy shows us, he's not even supposed to gather wealth, but over the years, David's desire had gotten the better of him. By this point, he had at least two wives and an unknown number of concubines, and as Solomon would go on to show, if one woman is not enough, then 1,000 won't be either. Now the woman on the roof is the latest in a long line of temptations for David, but this time it's different. This time he's going to get caught. What is the cost of giving in to temptation? I wonder how you might react if your deepest sins were uncovered. I don't know what you're talking about. Huh? hmm. Uh-huh. P2! We're keen to explain our mistakes away. Because if we can just find the right argument, things might go back to normal. If we try hard enough, we may even be able to convince ourselves that it was okay. A kind of mad survival instinct kicks in when we're in real trouble. How far would you be willing to go to fabricate your innocence? For David, the mistake was that he acted on his desire and invited the woman Bathsheba into his palace. But this is not just any woman. Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. These were his 37 best and most loyal soldiers, many of whom had been with him since the early days of fleeing Saul. Uriah the Hittite would have been held in great esteem and respect by his men, and Uriah the Hittite was also currently very far away, fighting the battles that David should have been fighting. Bathsheba is also the granddaughter of Ahithophel, one of David's advisors. Bathsheba was a woman with place and prestige, and with her husband very far away, Bathsheba was also pregnant. David's walls come crashing in. The law against adultery was very clear, with both parties facing death. In his desperation David provides a model for just how badly trying to cover your sin can go he first tries to avoid the problem coming out he calls Uriah back from the front and gives him leave to visit his wife go down to your house and wash your feet David says but Uriah doesn't go if his men are without their wives then he should be without his wife too He camps outside the palace with the servants. Next, David throws a party and plies Uriah with alcohol. If David gave in to temptation, perhaps Uriah will too. But again, Uriah maintains his honor and sleeps outside with the servants. Finally, David decides on a more direct route to solving the problem. If there's no husband, there's no adultery but he has to act quickly. David writes a letter to his commander and sends it back with Uriah himself. Send Uriah and his men to the front lines and then withdraw. Make sure that Uriah doesn't come back. David places the cost of his sin on Uriah. And it's Uriah who pays the price. In doing so, David makes others complicit in his sin. His army is corrupted, and brave soldiers lose their lives. Consider how it would affect the other men in the army to see one of their best so clearly sent out to die. But David, David marries the newly widowed Bathsheba and appears to get away with it. In fact, he even comes out looking rather good. What a king! is our David. When we fall in battle, he takes in our widows and our children as if they were his own. The deed is done, the problem solved. No one has to know. And the story could have ended there. Men with power don't follow the same rules as the rest of us. The strong survive. But this is God's kingdom. And the rules are the same for everyone. In the next chapter, a prophet arrives and the story is told. Be sure your sins will find you out. So what is the cost of giving in to temptation? Well, for David, it's death. Not for him, not straight away, at least, but for the baby that he sired. God strikes down the child to punish the father. For us, the cost will likely not be so extreme, but it's certainly in that direction. How many of our secret temptations move us closer to death in some way? The death of our compassion, our contentedness, our peace, our understanding, our desire for our wives or husbands. How many of the things we do when no one is looking drive that wedge of death between us and God. Each time we succumb to temptation, we destroy some part of that life that God has given us. The life that is meant to be lived to the full is squandered on shortcuts, indulgences and sin. Like David, we'll soon find that there is a cost to be paid, even if it's never us that gets caught. I think we can learn three things from this passage. The first is that temptation doesn't come all at once and inactivity makes it worse. By the time his eye settles on Bathsheba, David already has those two other wives and that host of concubines. Those wives would eventually give him 19 sons and an unwritten number of daughters. Bathsheba is not the story of how David fell from his high pedestal, but rather an example of a long-held sin. David had made a habit of giving in to temptation, and this time paid a high cost. Now we know this is true for ourselves. In our stories and films, temptation comes in one dramatic moment. The hero must choose between saving the girl or saving the world, and inevitably chooses both, we like to imagine sin confronting us, man to man, so that we can nobly refuse it, no matter the cost. But the reality is that temptation doesn't confront, it sidles. It's a conversation here, a link clicked there, a surprising opportunity. Something that catches your eye from a rooftop. Temptation becomes a habit, and habit becomes your character. I don't think I need to use examples because you know what you're enthralled to. The guilt rises like bile. Temptation is ever-present, and we know that we are particularly vulnerable when we are inactive. Which of us, when we're on a diet, would sit in the kitchen? Which of us, when avoiding alcohol, would carry a bottle in our pocket? Yet we carry our little portal to destruction with us everywhere we go. It sleeps by our side and waits for every quiet moment. Would you keep a chocolate bar by your bed or a bottle of whiskey at your desk? Temptation doesn't come all at once, but it's at its worst when we're inactive. Secondly, temptation leads to destruction, and there is a cost to be paid. David's infidelity, not just with Bathsheba, but with all of his wives, shatters Israel's royal family. Within a single generation, there is civil war. We can often balk at the punishments God hands out in the Old Testament, but consider the actual cost of David's sin. He murders one of his best soldiers, and several others die with him. He corrupts Israel's armies, demonstrating that its commanders can have soldiers killed at will. He shows the whole of his country that God's anointed king is a murderer, adulterer, and liar. He creates 19 potential heirs, muddling the line of succession, and he provokes a civil war that ravages his own land and pits father against son. How many people died because of David's temptation? How many other marriages were broken by example? People in the past were not so different to us. If God's anointed king has eight wives, is everyone else going to stick to one? Perhaps we think our sin is not so significant. We don't have the power to arrange a murder. We couldn't manage 19 sons if we bought them off eBay. But we do certainly have the power to bring destruction into our lives. While I've been talking, I'm sure there is a temptation that has made itself clear to you. What is the cost of that, really? Who does it involve? Who has to suffer so that your needs are met? How is it changing you and the way you see the world? If you had to lay that out, really confront each link in the chain, Are there any of us that are much better than David? Ultimately, the cost that David pays is a shadow of what he deserves. The son he fathered dies, and God condemns him to see his own wives taken from him as he took them from another. Temptation leads to destruction, and there is a cost to be paid. Finally, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In our time of internet mobs and prostrate celebrities, we must remember one of the core truths of the Bible. We are all sinners. Now we can say that lightly as if our sins were foibles, faux pas, but David reminds us of what it really means. We visit destruction upon ourselves and upon others. In our comfortable existences we imagine our sin to be light but God didn't just pay the cost for little sins. He paid the cost for disgusting, sordid and devastating sins. He paid the cost for intentional sins committed with malice and forethought. He paid the cost for sin so great it destroys a nation and sin so secret that we could never tell. The cost that God has paid is big enough that the second ever king of Israel can break God's rules so deeply, can murder and cheat and still be called a man after God's own heart. You will be sitting on your own sin. Whatever it is, it's terrible. It's destructive and it wedges death between you and your heavenly father and between you and the people you love most. But the cost for it, and there is a cost, has been paid. If your response to David's forgiveness is disgust, How can this man have been made the king of Israel? How can he be rewarded by becoming an ancestor of Jesus himself? Then I'll challenge you that your understanding of God's grace is simply not deep enough. God himself has paid the cost. If it's paid for David, then it's paid for you. All have sinned, everyone, and all can be forgiven. As you go back to your day or your week, consider what David could have done differently. At what point could he have left this train of destruction? Would you have told him to keep busy at the beginning? To place friends around him who could have intervened before it was too late? Would you have counseled him to own his mistake once it was made, to confess and seek forgiveness? And I wonder where you are in that process. If you were advising yourself, what would you say? Today is the day. There has never been a better time than right now. Ask the Holy Spirit to highlight the sources of your temptation and lead you to confront them in his strength rather than your own. Bring your challenges before your friends, before your small group. Find somebody to hold you to account and bring your sin before God so that he can forgive you.